0: screenwriting podcast. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week I'll be talking about the great Robin Williams, Robert De Niro film Awakenings. I'm just going to pick out a couple of really terrific moments from the first act. As you may know, this script is written by Steve Zalian. Steve Zalian is one of Hollywood's top screenwriters. He's best known for winning an Oscar for Schindler's List, but he has also adapted tons and tons of other projects, including The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, he wrote and directed the amazing John Travolta film, Civil Action, and he's got some really big movies coming up. So I want to get into Awakenings, which is one of his first produced features. First up in screenwriting news, I'm not going to talk about it too much this week. I want to find out more if possible. But Sony has announced a couple of really big female-oriented action projects. They are attempting to reboot Ghostbusters, uh, with a new female crew, and they are looking to do a Spider-Man spin-off starring a female character. This is really important because, you know, Sony's had a lot of trouble developing the Ghostbusters project, mainly because they spend a lot of time trying to rework the project, trying to figure out a way to get Bill Murray involved, and he has completely refused to even look at his script. And on top of that, they've tried a couple different variations, but for whatever reason, I I would guess, you know, with Ghostbusters, the deal... Is one of the biggest problems. There's a great book that talks about the problems that Sony had putting together a deal on Ghostbusters 2. And essentially, they had to give away 50% of the gross to the cast and to Ivan Reitman just in order to put that project together. So maybe, you know, there's a couple of reasons why they would take it off in this direction and say, well, we're going to try to do a bridesmaid's but with Ghostbusters. And that's why they chose the director of Bridesmaids to oversee this project. Of course, he also directed The Heat with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. So we'll see if that actually happens or not. Right now, it's just a development path they're going down. But I don't think that it's a coincidence that this comes very shortly after the the success of Lucy and some anticipation that the male-oriented tentpole film may get a little bit tired. You know, Marvel is already taking steps to diversify the types of films that they do. We saw that with Captain America 2, where they used the template of a 70s conspiracy thriller. You know, there's a reason that they hired Robert Redford for the villain role in Captain America 2. It's because of his participation in such iconic films as Three Days of the Condor. So in this case, Sony's also looking at using a female character to do something with their Spider-Man property. The grosses on Spider-Man 2 were flat. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, about The Amazing Spider-Man, the latest reboot. Usually there would be a spike in the grosses, especially because ticket prices go up from year to year. That did not happen with this one, and they're really questioning whether or not doing a third Spider-Man with this crew and with this particular talent... Uh, Makes sense for the studio or if they're just going to be degrading one of their tentpole properties and one of the biggest properties that Sony owns. So I think it's really interesting. No guarantees that these movies ever get made, but I think that it's an interesting direction and something to think about when you're looking to perhaps write a female-oriented action project. So in this week's Client Corner, a couple of quick... Uh, Situations I want to talk about. The most important thing that you can remember is don't worry about screenwriting feedback from people who are not professional screenwriters or professional readers or professional consultants or executives, producers, and so forth. I say this because I worked with one client who had changed a lot of elements in the script we were looking at. Now, of course, this script had a lot of big problems, but the biggest problem was that he was spending so much time Getting feedback from a neighbor of his who happens to be an actor. And this actor really has no idea what script development is about, had no idea how to clue this writer into the big problems that he had with this material. And instead, just basically gave him a lot of notes that were arbitrary. Well, I don't like the wife. I think she's too much of a bitch. Okay, let's just remove those teeth from the wife. Okay, here's the situation with our character. He's a little bit too much of an asshole. Well, let's, let's draw that back. And the result was that this writer spent months rewriting a script, dealing with none of the important stuff, and taking tons of notes from an actor... That became completely arbitrary, and as I gave you know, the, the writer notes, I was like, "Well, we should see how your neighbor feels about this and of course I, I 'm in facetiously, but this is something that happens a lot. You know, I, I would guess if you're out there and you're on your own, you got to ask your wife for notes. You got to ask your husband for notes. You got to ask your neighbor or your 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 buddies. Hey, man, what do you think of this script that I wrote? And to, to listen to what they have to say about it, unless you're talking about them finding spelling and grammatical errors, please don't give a shit what these people say. It might sound like they know what they're talking about, but I promise you they don't. I promise you, it's not. It's not just pointless, it's actually dangerous to spend too much time listening to people who have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. You also have to be really careful about who you hire, and I had a great example this week of what I do differently from other consultants. I don't think that I have all the answers. I don't think that I know everything about screenwriting. I think that I have a very particular take on what it is that amateur writers need to do and what they need to focus on, but I had never seen any situation as absolutely clear as what I encountered this week, because there was a writer who had a baseball script, and he had actually worked with a couple of really big names. He had worked with uh, Richard Walters from UCLA, and he had worked with another guy that, whose name I won't mention. But Richard Walters from UCLA is a really popular name in the script consultant game. He runs the screenwriting program at UCLA. And, you know, I've often wondered, why am I often so irritated by what... A lot of these screenwriting teachers have to offer. Why is it that when I work with clients who've been through some of these programs, I'm horrified at the material that comes at me, not because it's good or bad. Remember, amateur screenplays are just not going to be fully developed. It's not good. It's not bad. It's, is this person trying in the right way? And in this particular case, I didn't see the guy trying. Let me, let me just tell you what this particular scene was because it's the opening scene. Not going to tell you what the script was about. But in the opening scene of the script, we have a professional baseball player and he's on third base and he's got to choose whether to steal home or not. And that's the scene. That's our opening one page scene. It's completely unimpressive. So I asked the writer, I said, what is the point of this scene? And he said that both of the people he had worked with really liked the scene and it helped him craft it because it spoke to the hero's problem, which is that he doesn't want to go home. And, of course, very quickly, we're going to send the hero home uh, by the catalyst so that he has to come back to where he grew up and deal with his family again in some very particular ways that we won't get into. This was a very short scene that sort of thematically put that in play, that our hero was afraid to go home. You know, that's the kind of bullshit that you can learn in a comparative literature class or in an English literature class, um, that has very little to do with screenwriting. You know, we're talking about infusing meaning and infusing a second layer into the material. But what's missing is the entertainment value. Who gives a shit watching this guy and whether or not he's going to steal home? There's nothing even impressive about the way that the scene unfolds. It's just, okay, we need to use some very specific type of meaning here. And I don't necessarily look at material like that. I think it's all well and good. I would never say, well, no, that's bad or that's wrong. But the problem is that you've got to look for something deeper. And there's some really specific ways in 2014 that you can do that. Now, I think the, oh, he's afraid to go home thing would be really appropriate if you're teaching a screenwriting class in 1987. But we're not in 1987. If you took a screenwriting class in 1987, or you are learning or have learned from a professor who was teaching in a classroom in 1987, you are going to be getting a lot of old information. It's going to be really worthless, and you're going to write something that probably is not going to work for a reader who wasn't alive in 1987, because that's the truth, that the people, the front lines of readers today were not alive in 1987. What I would look for in that scene or what I suggested to him, you know, because it's easy to say there needs to be something spectacular. There needs to be some pizzazz. Well, let's break that down a little bit more because that's what I probably would have said seven, eight years ago when I had less of an understanding of how screenwriting operated. But today, I would suggest that this scene needs to show your hero doing something. Is he cheating in some way? Uh, Is he a baseball pitcher who's, you know, putting some Vaseline on the the ball? Or, you know, is he doing something that's going to reflect morally on the character? Tell us something about the moral universe he lives in, the type of decision that he makes. And how is that going to be different later? by the end, after the full experience. So it doesn't have to be all fireworks and guns and explosive kind of things, but it has to speak to your character in some very specific way that is related to behavior. It can't just be infused with general meaning. And I hope that you understand the difference. And I hope I've done a good enough job explaining the difference between the sort of English literature. He's afraid to go home and we're going to parallel that in this opening scene and who gives a shit and a character who's going to do something, who's going to act in some way and be active and then act differently by the end of the film. So I always welcome those experiences for me as a consultant to see how the advice that I give is a little bit different and more specific than what some other people do out there And, uh, you know, I'll be sharing those more with you when they occur. Moving on to Awakenings, the 1990 film, it was nominated for Best Picture. Penny Marshall directed it. This was Penny Marshall's first big prestige project. Of course, if you haven't seen A League of Their Own with Tom Hanks, Gina Davis and Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell, some other great people, uh, you should definitely do that also. But Awakenings is Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Robin Williams plays a incredibly socially awkward doctor who was hired to work in a mental hospital where there's an entire wing of catatonic patients. Catatonic patients who, in some cases, have literally appeared frozen for the better part of 40 or 50 years. And... Robin Williams goes up against the system. This is in many ways an institution movie because the character played by Robin Williams wants to treat these patients. He wants to figure out what's going on. And of course, the powers that be say, no, 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 your job is just to babysit them, to make sure that their diapers are changed and to see to any sort of medical problems they might be having. But your job is not to fix these people who have been trapped sitting in wheelchairs for the last 40 years. And of course, he's not okay with that. He wants to treat them, and he does. So Robin Williams' character realizes that these patients have a very advanced and particular form of Parkinson's disease. Now, the interesting thing about this form is that Parkinson's disease usually makes people shake and twitch and twitter. They have these tremors that go on in their body, and he realizes that they might be experiencing so many tremors that the tremors overlap and basically just freezes these people in place. So the film follows him through a medical trial where he awakens one of these patients through giving him a Parkinson's drug and then, of course, uh, gives this drug to the entire wing and everybody wakes up. Everybody comes back to life. And at that point, we have a lot of problems for Robin Williams to deal with because we have these patients who are now stuck in this ward. So I want to talk about a couple of things that are going on in the first act of this film that screenwriters can learn from. First of all, it is funny as shit. You know, this is one of the most important elements behind this movie because I was wondering, would this movie get made today? The answer is maybe, maybe not. Um, It's hard to see Hollywood paying to develop a script like this. Because it's based on a true story. It's based on a book. And the question is, would a studio be interested in buying this book and then paying a young up-and-coming writer like Steve Zalian $500,000 or a million dollars to write a screenplay so that they could then determine if they were going to try to make a movie out of it? However, if you wrote a spec script, uh, there's avenues to get a film like this made. But, of course, it requires the screenwriting genius that also went behind a film like Schindler's List in order to get a movie like this done. But because it's so funny, there's like 15 jokes before we ever wake Robert De Niro up. Um, and Robin Williams is not behind all of the humor either. A lot of the time, he's just reacting to situations. And when he is funny, it's not in the manic Robin Williams on a tangent kind of way that we're familiar with. It's very, very subdued. And it comes from the character point of the character being really geeky and socially awkward and not understanding how to properly relate to other people like an adult, which is something he will learn about through the course of this movie. So we have tons and tons of jokes in here. Um, But let's start off with the first thing, where we bring Robin Williams into the world. So Robin Williams is not currently a doctor at this place when the movie begins. So first, let me talk about the opening. The opening is a short montage of scenes where we see a young boy, and this is supposed to be a young Robert De Niro. uh, We see him playing with his friends. He carves his name, Leonard, into a bench. What a great visual representation of this is how you get the character's name across to the audience and represent that this is our character, Leonard because I was watching it with a friend and he said, why are we watching this? It's just a couple of scenes of the deterioration of this boy where we see that his uh, handwriting is getting worse. In fact, we have a scene where his teacher is doing his report card and goes over to his desk and looks through his notebook and sees that the perfect handwriting that's in the earlier pages of the notebook becomes more and more illegible to the point where it's basically just scribble." Because he's losing control of his faculties. And we have a quick montage of the deterioration of Leonard. Then we will jump almost 30 years into the future... Where Robin Williams is in a job interview. So, the importance of showing these scenes of Leonard as a boy is to show that when we later wake him up, he wasn't always a vegetable. We established that he was a boy with a personality and a mother who loved him and interests. And, you know, he wasn't just a vegetable who wakes up 30 years later. Um, into a completely new world, he's starting over as a person from where he left off. And that's why those scenes, even though they're not incredibly interesting or they certainly lack some pizzazz, they become absolutely necessary. So we jump into the future and we see Robin Williams in a job interview. Why is that important? Because we bring our hero into the world fresh. We don't want somebody who's been there for a long time. You throw your character into a new world, and this world is this mental hospital. And he's in a job interview. Well, let's talk a little bit about what genius Oscar-winning screenwriter Steve Zalian did to make this an interesting job interview. The premise of most job interviews is that the person who's interviewing wants the job, and the people who are doing the interviewing are the gatekeepers. And Steve Zalian says, let's reverse that. Let's make it so that Robin Williams doesn't necessarily want this job and these people are trying to push him into it. Number two way that this scene becomes interesting or that this setup becomes interesting is that Robin Williams as a doctor has no experience with patients, zero. He has barely ever dealt with human beings. They ask him about his research and he says, I just want to do research. That's what I'm interested in. And they're like, well, certainly you've done some research on people, right? And he goes, no, earthworms. I tried to extract, and he said, I spent five years trying to extract a decagram of whatever from 1,000 pounds of earthworms. And the interviewer says, you can't do that. And Robin Williams says, I know, I proved it. <laughs> so we actually have a joke inside of that where you know he's talking about this experiment that he did, and then he's being affirming about the thing that he couldn't do by saying, well, yeah, but I actually proved that you couldn't do it. Um, so, you know, you get a laugh out of that, but the most interesting part here is that he's got zero clinical experience with patients. He doesn't know how to deal with human beings and we'll then see him at home and we see him playing his piano. There are books everywhere. There are literally piles of books. The only thing that you don't see is a woman because we are very clear from his initial interactions with the nurse played by Julie Kavner, who of course you'll immediately recognize as the voice of Marge Simpson we will recognize that there has never been a woman to step through the doors of, the, of his house. Um, he, he has zero experience. He's probably never even been on a date before. So that's a character thing. You know, you want to show your character in their environment, in their home. That's why I say in before the catalyst, you want to establish your hero at work. We've seen Robin Williams at work, at least on a job interview and learn what he did. And you want to show where they live so that we can get a sense of who they are because that's going to tell us a lot about where they start out, and it gives us some contrast as to where they'll end up. I also want to talk a little bit about the detective element in this movie, because the first act, once he realizes that these patients need to be treated in some way, that he's not just there to water a vegetable garden, that these people are not vegetables, they're human beings, and they deserve some sort of treatment or attempted treatment. The thing that he does is he has to play detective. He does it by unraveling a code of symbols. And the the way that he does this is that he recognizes that there are patterns. I have to see what the pattern here is in order to treat these patients or come to some sort of cure for them. And one of the things that he does is he realizes that they have reflexes. That um, And there's a really interesting scene where he has a woman who's in a wheelchair. She is completely immobilized. She doesn't speak. Her face is like a mask. Her eyes are open, but you know she's basically completely immobile. And also let me point out that Part of the argument that the oppressors make, that the powers that be make, is that these people have nothing going on inside of their head. Actually, it's Max von Sydow who makes that point. He said Robin Williams visits Max von Sydow, who I believe was his predecessor, or who had studied this particular disease, and... He says, well, are they alive upstairs? Do they have mental function? And Max von Sydow says, no. And Robin Williams says, well, how do you know that? And Max von Sydow says, because the alternative is too unthinkable. So let's get back to this old lady in the wheelchair. Robin Williams is typing up the results of his medical examination of her, which is nothing. It's no different than she's had in her file for the last 40 years. But she falls. He finds her slumped over and her arm is grasping her glasses. Her glasses have fallen off her face, and she has caught them. Then he realizes that these people can actually catch a ball that's thrown at them. And, of course, the powers that be say, oh, it's just a reflex. But he realizes that there's something going on there, that this is something they can do. And then he sees that if they're being touched, if they're being held, you know, if if you just stand them up, they'll fall down. But if a human being is holding, holding their arm, they will move. They can ambulate. But she can only move halfway across the room, and she stops. And he realizes, "Oh my God, that's where the pattern of the checkered board floor ends." So he gets down on the floor with with the nurse, and he literally paints every other square so that the checkered board pattern can continue. And when that happens, he then puts the woman back, and uh, she can walk all the way to. You know, it's interesting. They set up that he thinks she wants to walk towards the water fountain. Because the, And that's where she, she looks like she's heading towards the water fountain. And then it turns out, no, she's walking towards the window. So that was a really interesting thing because we thought, oh, maybe she needs water. It's a survival instinct. But no, she just wants to look outside. Interestingly, that pattern is also established earlier when Robin Williams is walking by a television set that has a strobe effect going on. Where the picture is uh, strobing black and the reception is off. And he sees that one of these patients who's frozen is staring at the screen. So once he fixes the reception for the man, which is sort of a save the cat moment when you think about it, that he sees that this guy is staring at a TV where the reception's all messed up. As soon as he fixes it, the guy's eyes move away. He's no longer watching the TV. Um, But when he puts the strobe pattern back, when he ruins the reception the man's eyes go back to the television. So we're setting up, there's all these visual things that tell Robin Williams that there's some sort of pattern, some sort of code that he's got to crack. And as he continues working with these patients, one of them, played by Robert De Niro, he actually breaks out a Ouija board. And he uses that to allow Leonard to communicate. The reason that we know that Robin Williams isn't just moving the Ouija cursor himself is because he doesn't understand what it is that... Robert De Niro is spelling out. And what he spells out is Rilke Panther. What is Rilke Panther? Now we have the next step in the detective story, because now he's got to figure out what does this mean? So we then show him going to a card catalog, which some of you may remember used to exist. And he has to look up Rilke. And one of the things we've already learned about because Robin Williams has brought in Robert De Niro's mother, is that he was a voracious reader. That's what he did as he deteriorated. He just read and read and read. So he's incredibly literate. Um, So when Robin Williams goes to the card catalog, he finds Rilke, and he finds the name Rilke, that he was a poet. And then he finds the Panther poem. Now, you know, one of the things about infusing your movie with deeper meaning and using... Uh, great works of literature or philosophy, or in this case, a poem, is that it has to directly relate to what's going on. It can't just be subtext. And in this case, this is how Robert De Niro was communicating with Robin Williams, because he sends him to a poem, which is about a panther. And the, the, the quote is, his gaze staring through the bars has grown so weary that it can take in nothing more. That he's mentally alive, but stuck behind the bars of his body that can't move or communicate with the world. Um, and that's specifically Robert De Niro's way of saying, I'm awake in here. I am inside here. I can hear you. I just can't communicate with you. Let me talk about the next step because we don't just have all this meaning here. We don't just have the continuation of the detective story. We have two other things that I get to talk about today. The first is that we will show Robin Williams reading this poem about the Panther so that we get the information about being trapped behind bars And this could be part screenwriting, part director saying, how do I make this visual And working with the screenwriter or coming up with it herself? In this case, we actually show Robin Williams at the zoo, sitting in front of a panther cage with the book on his lap. So he's reading the book as he's watching a panther stalking from behind the bars. And that's how they make this visual couple of other quick elements of screenwriting in Awakenings I want to talk about. There is some wonderful dialogue work going on here. Dialogue doesn't just have to be snappy. It also has to be relevant to your characters. So when Robin Williams takes Robert De Niro on a drive, they drive past a school and Robert De Niro says, that's my school. And we see the kids are getting out, you know, the the kids are pouring out of the front doors. Um, that's a way, by the way, that a director would make things more active. Um, you know, it's not just they're passing a building. We're going to show uh, that, you know, the the school is letting out for the day. And it's just visually more interesting to watch kids pouring out of the school down the stairs than it is to see an empty building. But that's not necessarily something you would need to point out in a screenplay. Uh, and, and sometimes on this podcast, when I see little elements like that that show what a true director's work is, and how it differs from what screenwriting is, I'll try to point it out. Here he says, that's my school. He doesn't say, that's where I went to school Or I went to school there. Because it's not in the past tense. For this character, he's been asleep in some respects. Now, I know that, of course, we've just stated that, no, he's really awake in there. But he hasn't really moved on with experience. He hasn't experienced anything. He's just been stuck in a chair. So in a lot of ways, Robert De Niro is still this young boy. Or I believe that his deterioration took place over many years. So he was actually more of a teenager when it occurred. So when he sees this school, he goes, that's my school. He speaks it as a teenager or as a boy instead of as an adult in the past tense. It's that level of detail that makes Steve Zalian a multi-million dollar screenwriter. Um, We also constantly in this film set up opposition inside of the institution that Robin Williams is associated with. And we make a character played by John Hurd, who you may remember as the dad from Home Alone. He is the opposition here. He first says to Robin Williams, no, these people are basically asleep upstairs. They're in a coma, pretty much. There's nothing that can be done for them, and that's not your job. Then Robin Williams comes to him and says, I want to treat them. And he says, well, how many do you want to treat? And he says, all of them. John Hurd says, no, you can treat one. So he does treat one, and it works. And then then Robin Williams comes back and says, I want to put everybody on this medication. Look, it's a miracle. And John Hurd, you'd think, would say, yes, let's do that. And of course, no, because that's his function as the opponent. Whatever Robin Williams wants, we have to have a physical character, an asshole, to say no. Now, sometimes this asshole character will be... Coming from a position of ego, where they're using their experience to say, no, I'm right and you're wrong. In this case, John Hurt actually is not against treating these people. He just says the cost would be overwhelming. It would cost $12,000 a patient. And we had like 40 patients. So how are we supposed to pay for this thing? All our donors, we've already tapped. And then, by the way, there will be more opposition because then Robert De Niro later on says, I'm a person. I should be free to go out and go for a walk just because you're giving me this medication every day and treating me in this hospital doesn't mean that I'm not a person with free agency. I'm not a prisoner. I've done nothing wrong. And he has to petition the board led by John Hurd to simply have the right to leave the hospital and go for a walk on his own. And, you know, we'll continue to find that opposition. So if you watch the film, watch every scene that John Hurt is in because he's going to be saying no. And that's what a great opponent does. That is all for this week. You can sign up for my mailing list at officialscreenwriting.com. Hire me for a concept consultation or for a script consultation at officialscreenwriting.com. Email me with questions at thestarterscreenplay at gmail.com. And, of course, buy my book or please leave a review for my book on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it for Kindle. You can get it in print. I'm Adam Levinberg. Thanks for listening.